this is interesting. I never understood this until this moment. This whole conversation about MMT is about real-world outcomes, not just a theoretical or hypothetical view of money and value. Money doesn't matter. I mean, yes, it's an important part of the process, but it's, it's the hammer. What matters is the house to shelter people. But everyone just focuses on the hammer. Hmm. We need to build people houses. Let's use the hammer to build people houses. We can't use the hammer. There's just too many nails. That would cause inflation. That would cause nail inflation. People are desperate for houses, and all everyone is talking about is the hammer. Welcome to Activist MMT, a podcast about real-world economics, including modern money theory, and how life changes when you discover it. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today, I introduce MMT to author, journalist, radio talker, podcaster, and friend, Greg Stebbin. Greg is co-author of the 1999 book, Everything You Need to Know About Economics, which is part of a four-book series called The Pocket Professor, on the topics of economics, physics, philosophy, and religion. Among several other books, Greg also co-wrote the 2017 The Little Red Book of New York Wisdom with former Mayor Ed Koch. This two-part episode is an unscripted conversation, but our starting off point is a short introductory post I wrote for the purpose of this discussion. In part one, I give Greg a broad introduction to MMT, its basic policy implications, and some of the major myths it shatters. In part two, we branch out to a wide-ranging conversation about the state of the world and how MMT does and does not apply to it. This episode is also another step in my journey to creating a general introduction to MMT. It's actually my second recording with Greg. The first in May of last year was never released. I ran through my introduction presentation, which I had been working on for several months. Although I got a lot out of the experience, including some important analogies and insights, as a whole it just never came together. It was overwhelming. Even though only an hour, it probably contained somewhere between five hours and four years of information. After my experience with Greg, I abandoned the presentation entirely. This was most upsetting to me because of how so many gave their time and feedback to improve it. As Greg says, however, it was all a part of how I got to where I am today. The information is still there, just in a different form. Speaking of which, before listening to today's episode, you might want to consider reading my post. It's called A Political Introduction to Real World Economics. You can find a link to it in the show notes, and you can also go directly to it at activistmmt.org slash power hyphen intro. That's activistmmt.org slash power hyphen intro. If you like what you hear, then I hope you might consider becoming a monthly patron of Activist MMT. Patrons have exclusive access to several full-length episodes right now. Patrons also get the opportunity to ask my academic guests questions, such as my recent episode with Warren Mosler. They also support the development of my large and growing collection of Learn MMT resources. To become a patron, you can start by going to patreon.com slash activist MMT. Every little bit helps a little bit 
and it all adds up to a lot. Thanks. And now, on to my conversation with Greg Stebbin. Enjoy. So who is Adam? Adam Smith? Oh, is that what you typed? I can't see the rest of the name. Oh, yes, Adam Smith. <laughs> oh, I see. I see Adam S. That's all I see. If you don't know Adam Smith, we're in trouble. Yeah, okay. You may not agree, but you should at least know who he is. <laughs> I have a minor surprise, pleasant surprise for you. Does it um, involve a gift? No. I am actually using Phrase Express for the first time in years. Oh, wow. And and I'm really, it is really helping me, really helping me. Oh, good. And it's with the podcasts. Um, so I hurt my hand a couple months ago, and you know, I'm generally okay. I don't know, something's weird with that. But so, so it's, you know, it, it, every cut is very, has a specific, you know, steps, whatever. And sometimes my, my podcast can have hundreds of cuts. Yes. So, it's incredibly repetitious. You know, I have it down to a pretty, pretty, you know, smooth flow, but I just realized, you know, as I was, couldn't use my right hand for a month that phrase express, like, why not give it a try? And it has worked beautifully. It has probably shaved my, it has probably reduced my effort per episode, probably by around mm, 65%. Wow. Yeah. So, 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 um, so in other words, like you select a piece of text and then you, you hit a button or something and it does something. Well, it's, I mean, uh, I mean, very briefly, I, I edit on my phone. Yeah. You told I, me that. I'm sorry. I think you're crazy, but okay. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm okay with that. So I edit on my phone. I edit, I make the decisions on my phone. I don't actually do the editing, but I make the, right. the timestamp decisions and it works really well. Like I can, we'll do it on the move. I can do it while I'm walking. Um, uh, and then I transfer those timestamps to my computer, and then I have to finesse them, you know. So that's the first thing that phrase so that's expression. That's kind of works. a rough cut. No, no, no. It's just the timestamps. It's just okay. my decisions. It's not. I, I haven't edited anything. I've just made the decisions of where to edit. I see. Okay. And so I transfer those timestamps from my phone to the computer, and then I have to tr- I tr- have to transform it into a form that will be compatible with my digital audio workstation, my editor on my desktop. Mm. So that's the first thing I use Phrase Express for. That works beautifully. And then for each cut, I have to copy the timestamps from this text file that I finessed over to the the audio editor, and then it takes the beginning and end and does the cut for oh, me. I see. Huh. And and it's and you know with hundreds of cuts, it's uh, it's pretty amazing actually. So huh. anyway, obviously I thought of you, um, and uh, so there you go. Minor- I'm assuming I told you about Descript, or you've looked at Descript. You did tell me about the script um, that it automatically does a lot of stuff, and uh, you know I'm kind of intrigued by it. But I really, really like listening over and over again. Honestly, it just really helps it sink in for me, and it's just yeah. something well, to do. And it doesn't prevent you from listening over and over again. It just that's true. That's true. It, but. it it first of all they've I think since we last talked they've rolled out some new stuff that will take even the shittiest audio and make it sound a hundred times better. Huh. Okay. Audio quality. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're, you can edit the text at the same time. You're oh yeah. I remember writing. you said, yeah. And it's I just so much that. easier. And, uh, and if someone says, um, a million times, it just erases them all in like a minute. Sure. Yeah. That, I mean, it's definitely intriguing. I just, I don't know. I kind of, you know, I've taken a long time to come up with my flow and I got a flow and, and, and it works for me. And phase express has really made it a lot more, uh, what do you call it? Uh, feasible. Yeah. So, so yes. anyway, oh, interesting. I haven't yeah. used it in years and years. I mean, I work on a Mac now and use, sure. uh, a similar, but 10 times less German product called keyboard maestro. <laughs> I've heard of that. It's much more elegant. Mm-hmm. I remember I actually um, had a brief, brief experience with that. Yeah. I mean, it's really, in fact, I've now, I do a lot of stuff that has repetitive tasks. Okay. Like I'll sit here and do the same thing a hundred or 200 times in a row. Mm-hmm. And I've now activated it with my voice. So oh. I just say next. Oh, good for you. Next. And uh, keyboard maestro, you literally just copy an URL and paste it into the Mac uh, 
accessibility thing. And I mean, it takes like 30 seconds to turn something from a keystroke macro to a voice macro. Hmm. It's been phenomenal. That's great. That's great. Okay. So Greg or Adam, no, Greg, um, thank you for doing this again. Uh, can you please introduce yourself? Thank you so much for coming on and doing this with me. Yeah. So uh, my name is Greg Stebbin, and uh, you and I have a very interesting and long history together. Uh, but I suspect the reason I'm here today is that I've written a lot of books, including one called, I wrote a series of books, I think in the early 2000s, called the Pocket Professor series for, for uh, pocket books. There were four books. The Pocket Professor, everything you need to know about philosophy, economics, physics, and religion. And I wrote each of these books with a with a, an academic from each of the subjects. So I wrote this book about economics, which gave you and I a lot to talk about in terms of your interest in MMT. Mm-hmm. And I know, you know, I mean, I, I don't think you can be an aware, responsible adult in 2022 and not at least have heard of MMT. Mm-hmm. And if you've heard of it, I'd like to think, you know, if you're a responsible adult, you've at least Googled it. And and that's kind of where I'm at with it. I, I wouldn't say I understand it. I, there was a time where I did, you know, maybe an hour of reading about it and went, oh, that's interesting and really haven't thought about it other than our conversations about it. So I'm looking forward to hearing you talk about it so that I can remember what I learned then and get a much deeper understanding. Cool. Yeah. Uh, can you can you briefly talk about what the economics book covered? Oh, it was it, it, it's kind of a for dummies book. So there are thin little volumes that just cover the basics of economics. I mean, if you took economics 101 in college, which I did, I mean, it was kind of that. There's nothing ground shaking or profound about it. it it's really kind of a for dummies book. But like macro versus micro versus oh, yeah, yeah, pers- yeah. like personal finance? Uh, a little bit of personal finance because that's a good way to make economics relevant. I, I have to be honest. I don't actually have a copy of it. Um, and I wrote it a long time ago, so I don't really remember what's in it. Just but, just broadly. Yeah, it's, it's, it's basic economics. Micro, macro, of course, personal finance. And I guarantee you there was nothing about MMT in it. I, I, I guarantee you, cause I'm not even sure MMT existed when that book was written. 96, 96, but okay, it certainly it, wasn't it existed, prominent until. But it certainly wasn't. Uh, prominent. Yeah, yeah. 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 I'm looking for the copyright of these books were published in around 1999. So. Okay. Well, if you find the link, I, of course I've put it in the show notes. Um, okay. So, so we spoke, I think it was May. No, was it May? It was something like that. It was like we we planned it for a while and then I kept postponing because I was just working on it. And I think we ended up talking like May or whatever. And so what I did was I wanted you to to give you my presentation. I had been working on it for three, four months at that point. And I was hoping, you know, whatever, just to get your feedback and for it to kind of be a milestone and hopefully eventually do it in public. And that was the last time I did it. And obviously I did not release that because although – I got a lot out of the experience and I think there are probably four or five like pieces and analogies and like real substantial stuff that were very important that came from that as a whole, it just never came together. It was overwhelming. Um, so just briefly, I will will vouch for the overwhelming. (laughs) Okay. So, so, you know, just briefly, if you can kind of just give your, give me, give your memory of that you know, I mean, I guess you just generally agree with what I just said. Yeah. I mean, it's there, frankly, there was way too much information there. Um, I don't know if we spent an hour or 90 minutes talking, I don't remember, but it was way too much information. Mm -hmm. It was was data rich and data dense. And frankly, you had enough material to write an entire book. (laughs) We were trying to, so I don't have any, I'm not, critical of your of your scholarship and your efforts no of course it's it's i could see as i listened having written a lot of books you kind of go through this period or process of of processing the information before you can boil it down into the form that you're going to deliver it Mm -hmm. and and i i was kind of equated to 
when you're water skiing, there's that period where the boat is pulling you and you're just, there's water everywhere, but you're not quite up yet. Mm-hmm. And that was my experience was that I was being flooded with water. And I think that's kind of where your mind was too. And, mm. and, I, and I suspect that since then you've been able to refine it within your own mind, which makes you much better at communicating it to others. And I, I, I'm guessing that's why I'm here. Well, I, I, I mean, I, I abandoned the presentation com- just completely. I have not touched it since we spoke. Well, um, I mean, I, but- I would actually argue that you probably haven't abandoned it at all. It, you're just not using it as a presentation because it was part of your evolution to get where you are today. Okay. Yeah, that, no, that's fair. That's fair. I definitely took some very, very significant pieces from it that have stuck with me since then. Right. But I mean, as- if you would abandon it, we'd be talking about, you know pop music right now or something <laughs> or a phrase clearly haven't abandoned <laughs> just found that the form itself needed to evolve oh yeah no that's 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 fair okay so i want to introduce you to mmt and i just want this to be a conversation and i wrote notes to try and what I, my idea was to to basically talk for maybe five minutes and 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 it just turned out that those notes became so involved that it became an article. But I think the article is real, relatively well self-contained. It's not overwhelming. It's, you know, it's, I, I'm happy with it. But it ended up being an article and I asked you to read it. Thank you for reading it. Um, and I just want, and maybe, I don't know, maybe I might read it in, during the introduction or whatever, certainly refer people to it. Um, so I just want to use that as a basis to, you know, pique your interest and to to get us started. And let's just see where it goes. I have no plan at all. I mean, obviously I've been at this for a while, but um, uh, you know, let's just see where it goes. So I, I don't know exactly how to start doing it. I could basically, I could ask, you know, what did you think about the article or, or what are your questions or whatever you, whatever you think? Uh, well, I, I have a question for you before we get started and, and tell me if this is a fair question or not. Who are we talking to? Are we talking to people who already are familiar with MMT or are we talking to people who may be getting their first or an early introduction or some combination of both of those things. Honestly, I think we're talking to people that know a moderate amount, but want to introduce it to people who don't know much mm. at all. Okay. So it's basically, I kind of see this as teacher is a little bit too strong of a word, but just to say it easily, basically te- teaching, teaching of this subject. Mm. Interesting. Okay. So I, I found your article very useful. Um, I actually highlighted some things in red to ask you about. Okay, good. Um, It seems to me that what would be helpful to me before I start asking questions, because any questions I have are sort of in the middle of the basic premise of MMT. I'd love to hear you explain the basic premise of MMT. And then I, I, I would love to then ask questions after I hear you explain. Okay, uh, I'm, I am curious if you feel that that it did the article serve that purpose, or does it need to be supplemented? Um, I mean, obviously that was my intention of the article. What, what I didn't get from the article, I don't know how to say this. What I didn't get from the article was maybe it's a real world example of how MMT might exist in my life today or tomorrow. I I didn't, I mean, your, your article is, is good academically and conceptually, but it didn't really help me understand, you know, why I should think this is a good idea in my life. Okay. Okay. Um, MMT is a map. Uh, the you know the economy and and the law and and the, the the legal and economic system of our country the financial system of our country the economic theory is a map of that system so neoclassical economics which is you know the most dominant by far the most dominant theory of economics is a map of the economy is a map of of you know the economy it's so basically you know you have a map of the land. And that map is supposed to guide you so you can choose a destination and get to your destination in an efficient manner and know what to expect along the way. That's the purpose of a map, a geographical map. The map doesn't change the land. The map doesn't change 
what it represents. It just it just is a lens to that system. Okay. Okay. So obviously you want a map to be representative of the land you're traveling on. So if you get a map that, you know, they say that, you know, this is your town, but it's actually like, you know, Middle Earth, then that's not going to be a very helpful map for you. You're not going to really know where to go. You're not going to really know how to get there. If you're given a map that makes total sense, that is actually representative of the land that you're traveling on, then you can very easily choose your destination. You can choose your path to it. You can know what to expect along the way. So obviously you would choose to have a map that that matches the land you're traveling on. And again, the map doesn't change the land. It's just your lens to see the land, you know, because it's too big for you to see at once. Right. So economic theory is the map of our economic and financial and legal system. Is it the map or a map? Each theory is a map. A map. Okay. Each theory is a map of this system. uh, Biology is a map of the human body. But so we have neoclassical economic theory. We have MMT. We have institutionalism. We have – there's there's quite a few. There's quite a few. Um, Okay. Neoclassical economics is not very representative of the real world. And I'll just leave it there for now. There's more, there's more behind that, but I'll just leave that there for now. MMT is an accurate map of the world. It is of the economic and legal system that we actually have. And it's pretty obvious. It's pretty clear to an average person that, that spends some effort looking into it, reading the actual scholarship of the MMT economists, that it's, it's, it's representative of the economic and legal system that we actually have. Now, a map can show you where the destination is and how to get there, but it doesn't mean you can actually get there because there may be someone there with a gun that doesn't want you to arrive at your destination. Or the bridge is out. Or the bridge is, well, I mean, you know, hopefully a map would tell you that part. Mm. But, but a person standing there at your destination with a gun, you're going to be met with force if you try and get there. That doesn't mean that the map is not accurate. That means that there is an additional element outside of the scope of that map, politics. Okay. There's there's politics that makes it not possible to reach a destination easily, even though you know where it is and how to get there. Mm-hmm. So you could say that a neoclassical map, cynically speaking, I don't think inaccurately, <laughs> is an intentionally bogus map because it is intended – it is intended to deceive the poor into hurting themselves so that the rich don't have to hurt them. Is neoclassic Where, what what most of us think of as the economy, the U.S. economy today, a map of, of how we are taught the economy works today? Yes. You have to get taxes before. The government has to attack. The, and when I say government, I only mean national. State and local are, are totally different. The national government has to get money from people by taxing or borrowing before it can spend. And therefore, therefore, who gives the most to the government? Rich people do. Therefore, the rich have the most decisions, most influence over the decisions of what government does for people. That's that's the neoclassical map that we're given. Okay. Taxes pay for stuff. Don't waste my taxes. MMT turns that on its head and says that you and I have to find money before we can spend. And this is a crude way of saying it, but the, the, just to make it analogous, is the government is opposite. The government has to spend before, you know, it, it has to spend before it can collect. It is in a unique position, which means that it does not need tax money or borrowing necessarily, certainly not in a one to one fashion as people believe, to do things. So if someone is sitting around, if there's a, a worker sitting around, that, a, a, a person sitting around that wants to work and is capable of working, he is a resource that is available to purchase. And therefore, it is perfectly safe to create the money to hire that person to do some job to be productive in the economy. And not only is he productive, we are not letting a human being go to waste, which hurts him, which hurts his family, which hurts his community. So I, that's kind of 
all over the place, but but I think that touched on some interesting stuff. So I'll leave it there for now. So one of the things I highlighted in your article, um, and I think you set me up for it perfectly without knowing what I was going to say, is you wrote, it's impossible for the government to purchase anything except by creating more money. And so I think you would say the neoclassical map is that it's impossible for government to purchase anything except by collecting taxes and then spending the taxes. You're saying that doesn't work that way at all. It's never worked that way. So help me understand because the, the tax model makes sense to me probably because I've been groomed to think that way. So help groom me to think another way. Well, I mean, it makes sense at a personal level. It makes sense at a personal level. And so you assume that the personal, your personal experience applies to the national government and that, why does that have to be true? You, the, why, does a scorekeeper need to find points before he can collect it? No, he issues those points. He doesn't need to collect it from anybody. So you need to put yourself in the position of an issuer, which is not something in your personal experience. It could be if you're a scorekeeper. It could be if you're a writer. You're a writer. Where do your words come from? You issue your words. They, you 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 will them into existence. That's where, from the national government's point of view, that's where money comes from. But only from their point of view, because they're the only ones that are allowed to create it. No one else can take your book and, you know, this is pretty, whatever, you know, all analogies fail. This is one's going to fail pretty quick. But, you know, you are the issuer of your books. You are the issuer of your words. No one else can issue your words. All they can do is is pass them around. They can read them, but they can't change your words as you created them. Mm. You issue your words. You need to put yourself in the position of the issuer in order to understand the national context. We assume that our personal experience applies to the national context, and we've never been disabused of that feeling. So, so, so in that in that context. I can only draw the conclusion that the issuer can issue as much as the issuer wants and it doesn't matter because I can write as many words as I want and it doesn't, I mean, it matters. There's more words. So if the issuer can just keep issuing money and we could have a whole conversation about what money is too, but if the issuer can just keep issuing money, it doesn't have any impact on the money that's already in existence. Well, that's a pretty broad question. I mean, think about it from a, an author point of view. You know, it's like you can keep writing. You have the ability, the capacity. You have the infinite capacity to keep writing. But there's only so much time in the day. You know, you, you don't want to do that. You have other things you want to do in your life. Right. But there's another part of this that I that I that is hard for me to translate. And that is I can write and write and write and write and write. But at some yeah. point, I have to translate. I don't have to, but I prefer to translate those words into money. So you know, in in the before there was an internet, writers used to get paid by the word. Let's just say a dollar a word. But I I could write a hundred thousand words, but it didn't mean that I could sell all of them because some of them were good and some of them were crap. Okay. Some of them were good, but nobody wanted them anyway. So it wasn't a one-on-one thing, but I think you're saying the issuer can just issue, and that's a big difference. The, I mean, a there is no, there is nothing stopping a hammer from hammering a trillion nails. Okay, there's just nothing stopping that. There's no, there's no, I don't know exactly how to say it, but there's no. Uh, limitation on the amount of nails that a hammer can hit. Okay. It has that a carpenter has the unlimited capacity to use a hammer to hammer nails. That doesn't mean that that changes how that doesn't mean that his capacity has suddenly become dangerous in any way. It just means that if he says, I can't do this job because that's too many nails you know that he's talking nonsense because he could say, I don't want to. He could say, I refuse to work for you. He could say, 
you know, there's a storm there, you know, it's raining outside. He could say that this guy behind this, you know, my boss says to, to get away from you. There could be a million real reasons to not do it. But one of those reasons is not this hammer can't hammer that many nails. That is a bogus constraint. So the idea, the, so the, the point is not that there are not constraints. There are, of course, constraints. The, the point is to determine which constraints are real and which constraints are fake. So for a carpenter, the real constraints are the weather and his boss and, and his desire and his ability to, to be his health and yes. his waking hours. Those are real constraints. His car is working today. His kid might be sick today. Those are real constraints. One of the constraints that is not real, it's not a constraint. It's, it's not a constraint, is the amount of nails that that hammer can hit. That's a fake constraint. And if he uses that as a constraint to not do something, he's misled or misguided or deceived or lying. There's just no way around that. And so in the national national government's context, there are infinite constraints. There are tons of constraints. The real world has its constraints. There are only so many people in, you know, in the economy, in the United States. There's only so many trees. There's only so many open spots of land. There's only some, you know, a, a crop disease. There's a, a tornado hits a town. Um, you know, there, there are real constraints. The real world is, is, has constraints. Omicron, you know, the ability of people to go to work or, or should they stay home or whatever. A not real constraint is when a, a government official says, oh, I want to give health care to the poor, but what about, you know, how are you going to pay for it? Those are false constraints. From the national point of view, that's just simply a false, fake constraint. And that's mu- much of what we hear on the news is anything for the, for that the poor desperately need is how are you going to pay for it? Taxes, borrowing, who are we going to tax? Who are we going to borrow from? What about China? All of these excuses. And they say inflation in that context as inflation, a boogeyman, not a real, mm. you know, so so it's fake constraints versus real constraints. And in the national context, purely financial constraints don't exist. So in your scenario of let's just take healthcare, we're going to give everybody healthcare. Okay. So we no longer believe that we have to tax people to pay for healthcare. So okay. where but it does cost money to provide healthcare. I mean, doctors have to be paid and nurses have to be paid and hospitals mm-hmm. have to be mm-hmm. paid. And, you know, there mm-hmm. has to be bandages and shots and, sure. you know, all that. There's a lot of commerce behind healthcare. If we're not getting the money from taxes, I mean, literally, where does it come from? It comes from the computer at the central bank and the treasury. That by simply making a number bigger in the computer for the bank that is has the account of the hospital or you know whatever service or the medical supplier or the band aid company. So and as long as as long as those resources exist are available to purchase, if there's someone the resources if, of healthcare, not the not the monetary resources. If the physical productive resource capacity is there. If there is a doctor to be educated or hired or sitting around or even imported, a doctor be imported. If there is a a Band-Aid sitting on the shelf to be purchased, a box of Band-Aids sitting on the shelf to be purchased, or that can be produced by some company, then that means that it is perfectly safe to create that money in order to purchase those people or purchase those things, pay the wages of the doctors, buy that box of, you know, band-aids on the shelf or buy this medical thing. Um, yeah. So where does the money come from? It comes from making a number bigger in a computer uh, in the central bank, which is then transferred to the bank. That is this commercial bank that is the, uh, that has the account of the hospital or the company. And then it's put into their checking account or savings account. Oops. So I'm, I'm trying to imagine. And, and, and actually, let me say there is a study uh, that was done two years ago of medi- specifically Medicare for all. 
And it actually was not through an MMT lens. It was actually a little bit neoclassical. And it still says it would save about a half of a trillion dollars a year and save 60,000 lives every year. And that's without MMT. So with MMT, it would be even more optimistic. Well, I, I don't know that I know that study in particular, but I've noticed studies like it. And I suspect that's a completely different conversation because it's just shifting, right? It's saying if we provide everybody with healthcare or Medicare for all, it's actually going to cost us less to keep people, to make people even healthier than they are now. But that's a completely different conversation because it doesn't have anything to do with, it's using the same lens of economics. It's just saying we're just being stupid about how we spend what we have in the existing neoclassic view, right? Uh, no, I would actually say that it shifts, but not in the way that you think, because currently people pay out of pocket for insurance, for whatever, mm. plus the real world consequences of bankruptcy and and just being sick and the consequences of that and not being able to leave a job that that is hurting them, because if they do, then their whole family loses health care. But the point is, is that currently people pay out of pocket for healthcare, mm -hmm. where with Medicare for all, the government will be paying for mm. healthcare. It will not come out of the people's pockets again, because they don't need to collect taxes before spending and on a one-to-one -one very tight basis like that. Yes, would there, there may need to be taxation at some point for some reason. But it's a very, very loose connection and the kind of the cutesy thing that I like to say, which is it's 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 you know, it's a little bit of a sick joke and it's a little bit cutesy, but it's actually kind of real. Our going to the bathroom does not pay for our eating. And that's the idea of as if it's a cycle, as if it's a direct immediate cycle. And it's not. Our our relieving ourselves is relieving pressure. That what comes out of us is not used as input. And it's the same thing with taxes. Taxes are not used as input. It is something to relieve pressure so that more spending can happen. It's one of many things I can use for that purpose, but that is a purpose of it. And yes, it is, you know, thinking of the bathroom and eating. Yeah, it kind of is a cycle, but it's not an immediate direct cycle. It is a very, very enormous loose cycle. Uh, because, you know, whatever, composting and then growing into more food and then eventually some of that food makes it back to you. So, yeah, it is kind of a cycle, but it's not a direct immediate cycle as people think. And that's really quite analogous to taxation. The taxes are not an input, direct input to the spending. They disappear. They all, you know, they have to disappear, as I say in the article. So, yes, it, taxation may be necessary for some point in some way. But it has nothing to do that it's an immediate one-to-one, -one, you mm. know, direct cycle. So help me understand. Let's just say in the United States, we discard this neoclassical view of economics and we embrace the map provided by MMT. That's going to force or encourage is maybe a better way to say it. People to have a very different mindset about money and value and resources than they do today. Right. How, how do you think? Well, I think that if there's a need and the federal government can just produce more money to address the need, one of the things you're doing is getting rid of a core value of our culture, which is we live and are driven by scarcity. Yeah. If everybody can have a Tesla, then you better have a different structure for valuing Tesla. But a test. I don't have a Tesla, by the way. I don't really want one. But <laughs> no, I mean, there's a lot of people that want a Tesla, and if just there's a Tesla for everybody, you can see the value of a Tesla has been dramatically altered. And if you 
take that concept across our entire economy, that's a very different mindset than the mindset we have today. Do I work as hard as I used to if everybody gets a Tesla? Do I save as much as I used to? Do I have to work as much? Do I have to work? Do I have to save as much? Maybe I work more because because I live in a world that is approaching utopia. Maybe, maybe I'm actually motivated to work more, but regardless of how it plays out, it's very different than how things play out today. Well, I would say, first of all, I don't know if it's possible to give everyone a Tesla. The, <laughs> I mean, I mean, resource-wise, well, the, the lithium, the lithium required, the, the harsh chemicals required, the 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 infrastructure for the charging stations and all that stuff. I don't know if it's physically possible but, to but give we everybody. Have, but we already have a a federal government who's kind of said we think everybody should have an electric car. So, well, they can say whatever they like. If it's physically possible, then great. If it's not physically possible, it's not going to happen no matter it doesn't matter how much money they can create. If the physical capacity is not there to create Teslas for everybody, it's not going to happen. And mm-hmm. if they tried, if they tried if they tried to force it, uh, I don't care, you know, you make it happen. We're, we're everybody's getting a Tesla in the next 5 years. Make it happen. Here's the money for it. That would cause very big problems if we did not have that physical capacity to do it. Okay. Because if the lithium is there, if all the materials are there, if the infrastructure is there, then that's one thing. But I'm skeptical that it is. I, I you know, I, I don't think either of us saying also true about healthcare and food. Are we capable of providing everyone with health? With there is a there is a level of healthcare and this, and is there enough food? There is a there is a, the study that I pointed to says that Medicare for all is 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 totally feasible. I mean, if you think about it, it's really the 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 Resources required for healthcare are much, much less than are required for a Tesla. Okay. <laughs> it's mostly educated people in some buildings. Well, then let's take let's take my example and throw out the Tesla and talk about healthcare. We still need this. We need a change of mindset, right? We- yes, and and also education. Education is another very low, relatively speaking, resource intensive thing. Books, buildings, and educated people. I mean, that's pretty much education, you know, and some computers, you know, that's not nearly as resource intensive as, you know, the military is resource intensive mm-hmm. and it's not just resource intensive. It's in, it's inherently the destruction of resources, <laughs> including people. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the point of it. Um, so, uh, can you ask your question again? Sure. I, I, I'm trying to get to like the, the meaning to the average person of we, the collective we, I think it's going to be pretty challenging to do what I'm suggesting, but let's just, let's do a thought experiment here. We collectively all go, yeah, MMT, groovy, two thumbs up. That old neoclassical view, we're throwing that out. We're, we're going to have a, an MMT economy now. And so we now know it's possible to just give everybody enough food and appropriate healthcare. And so we're just going to do that. Okay. But it actually, there's the, the actual function of the economy to provide those goods and services. But then there's also the mindset or mind shift that has to occur to have an economy that runs that way versus the way it runs today. Because in today's economy, if I'm at the top of the healthcare food chain, if I'm a, a pharma executive or an insurance company executive, I like the way it works right now. I, I don't know if I'm so crazy about this. Everybody gets whatever they want model because because I'm going to lose my Tesla. And I think that's where I think that's that's where this path leads. We already have an MMT economy. It's it's been MMT has been. It describes the U.S. economy since it began. It's not something new. It's it's a description of how it's always been and already is currently right now. Hmm. So the difference is, yes, we have the CEOs that don't want to lose their profit, their power. And they're the ones that bribe our politicians to create laws that make them even more powerful, you know, make that what was illegal now legal, bribes and and you know 
negotiating, not be able to, not being able to negotiate prices and, you know, everything else. But what they do is they use neoclassical as an excuse to deceive people that they're wanting to deprive the poor is unfortunate but necessary when in reality that CEO doesn't want to lose his power, doesn't want to lose his profit. And that greed requires the mass exploitation of the poor. And the only way to do that is to withhold from the poor. So what MMT does is it takes away those excuses. And if they want to deprive the poor, they need to be honest about it. What neoclassical allows is them to pretend that depriving the poor is unfortunate but necessary. MMT forces them to be honest about that hatred and that exploitation and that desire, that greed. And that's why there is resistance to it. There, it's, it doesn't change anything because a map doesn't change what it represents. It just changes our view of it and it makes it much more difficult for those people who are in power to deceive the rest of us into thinking that being deprived it's was, is what's best for us. It was what's best. For, it is best for me, for those rich people to deprive me to, and in fact, to exploit me. Um, just to play devil's advocate here in a few different ways. First of all, I, I'm, I'm just gonna. You have your beliefs, and I have mine. I, I'm sure there are some CEOs that can be categorized as you described. I do, I, I do not believe that all CEOs live that way or think that way. They may be in a system where they're unaware that that's what's happening. What I think you're describing is a system, and there probably are some people who are exploitive and et cetera, et cetera. But I, I just, I don't want to leave what you said stand as if all CEOs are evil, exploitive people. I don't, I, I agree with you. I don't think all CEOs are evil, exploitive people. I think the, I think as a collective that that is the system. That is essentially well, what we and, have. And that's where I'm going is I think what you're describing is a system where if you grew up in the system, you can be a significant player in the system. By the way, I don't think you can just single out CEOs. I think you have to include some other people too, like politicians, oh, right? Oh, sure. I mean, they're, yeah, I mean, lots of people. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I of course, of course. Up, and if you grew up in the system, you know, there's the expression, it's like water to a fish. I mean, well, first of all, if you go on Twitter, for instance, or read any business publications, there are groups of business leaders who have similar points of view that you do. They're CEOs, they're leaders of businesses, they're thought leaders, and they're expressing the same kinds of things you are because they believe Dan Price is one. He's the guy in Oregon or Utah who said, everybody in my company makes a minimum of $100,000 a year. He has like a payment company. So pretty well-known guy. You can Google him. But yeah. I mean, when he made this declaration, you know, everybody said he was an idiot and his company was going to tank and, you know, and he was an idiot. And he was an idiot. And a few years later, and this was before COVID, but even through COVID, his company has the word thrived, thriven his, his company <laughs> has been even more successful as a result of paying people what is far beyond any kind of debate about minimum wage. I think it is like a hundred thousand dollars or something. I thought it was 70, but, but 70, yeah, it's, it's, it's up there. 70, it's up there. But it's a big number, right? Everybody yeah. makes that as a minimum. Well, his company has grown exponentially. He has seen, and, and if you go follow him on Twitter, he talks about it all the time, you know, all these numbers of people within his company have now been able to uh, afford to buy homes. They're food secure. They'll, they're healthcare secure. That has come back to the company so that the company is producing more because they have less absenteeism and more loyalty and they don't have turnover. And it's he's actually created, and there are other business leaders like him, their own system that perhaps is kind of an MMT system where there's this constant feedback loop of positivity by 
not coming from a position of scarcity, but coming from a position of abundance. And he gives his employees power and makes that which makes them more productive and which makes them more loyal and which then makes them more able to afford the products of that company. So That's of course right. it's a good thing. Of course it's well, a good thing. Well, I mean, but but you know, there were a lot of skeptics that said if you pay everybody seventy thousand dollars a year, you're gonna run out of money. And he didn't run out of money at all. He's his because, company became more because, successful. Because employees spend. <laughs> employees spend. They don't, I mean, you know, the, the, yes, of course, of right. course. I mean, that's a micro view, but yes, it's for lots of reasons, his business has done dramatically far better as a result of doing this. Sure, sure. He cares about his workers. So, <laughs> but it's still to the point, if I'm, can an entire nation or world do what Dan Price did? I mean, I'm not, I, I know it's, if he could do it, Everybody could do it, but how do you make that happen? Do you why make does that? Why does that have to happen? Well, well, if nothing happens, then you have the same system. Well, okay, but there's a big gap between nothing and everybody making seventy thousand dollars a year. Right. Well, I'm asking you, how do you? What's the real world practical roadmap? You know, you introduced the idea of maps, and I think it's a good one. How do we get from? How do we get from here to there? As far as I'm concerned, the only th- what needs to be done is we need to give people health care, education, a job, and unpoisoned water, and a, a planet where you know we don't have to worry about going extinct in the next 20, 30 years. Uh, th- that would be a great start. <laughs> that would be a great start. After that, we can have a conversation. But we have catastrophic problems that need to be dealt with. And the solutions are very clear. And for a job and canceling student debt and uh, and Medicare for all and uh, something else I can't recall at the moment, those things are, are studies already out there that show that the, oh, a Green New Deal, a Green New Deal, all completely doable, not just doable, but desperately needed. They're not just, they're desperately needed. They're not just beneficial. They're desperately needed. So those that's the beginning. That's the start. So just do that. <laughs> so this is interesting. I never understood this until this moment. This whole conversation about MMT is about real world outcomes, not just a theoretical or hypothetical view of money and value. Money doesn't matter. I mean, yes, it's an important part of the process, but it's it's the hammer. What matters is the house to shelter people. But everyone just focuses on the hammer. Mm. We need to build people houses. Let's use the hammer to build people houses. I can't, I, we can't use the hammer. There's just too many nails. That would cause inflation. That would cause nail inflation. People are desperate for houses, and all everyone is talking about is the hammer. And that's that's the analogy. People are desperate for healthcare and education and to have water that's not poisoned and to have a world that's not going to collapse around them. And we clearly have the ability to do it. Money is simply a tool to do it with. What There's no point in focusing on the money because, as I say in the article, money is nothing more than a manifestation of our decisions. I, don't, I think I used the word power in the article, but it's decisions is just another way of saying it. From the national point of view, from the, in the national context. So I'd like to make an observation, and I hope this is useful. If our conversation and your article started with this about here's what people need, and as you just said, money's just a tool for making it happen, but if we really had focused on the needs, we'd be having a very different conversation because we started talking about the mechanism or the hammer. Even in this conversation, even though you're saying we shouldn't be talking about the hammer, what we did today was talk about the hammer. We've spent almost all this time talking about the hammer. And right. I just now got that it's not about the hammer. 
It's about the house. I didn't understand that until now. Well, if I did, if I if I started the conversation and say we need to give everybody healthcare, a job, uh, uh, education, and unpoisoned water, what would it, what would your response have been before reading the article? Before you know, what would your response have been? Well, I, I, how are you going to pay for it? <laughs> not necessarily. Um, and I'm and I'm not saying that it's easy to start the conversation that way. It's not easy at all. But I think it's more productive. And I. I as we've been talking, a story came to mind. Um, my wife has been listening to a book on tape, and it's called, shoot, uh, it's called Stick or Sticky or something like that. Two very big best-selling business authors. The book is a business book, but it's really about um, anybody who's passionate about something should read or listen to this book because it's really about how do you take your, the thing that's important to you and communicate it to other people? Mm-hmm. And there's a story in this book. So it's, it's a business book, but it could just as well be about someone who's passionate about a, a particular, you know, about hunger, about healthcare, about whatever it is. Mm-hmm. You know, communication at the end of the day, most change comes as a result of communication. Mm-hmm. I, I would suggest, of course, that's easy for me to say, cause I get paid to communicate. So <laughs> yeah, that's my hammer. <laughs> but there's a story in the book that I'm reminded of. This guy in like the 90s goes to the office of some venture capitalists. And he thinks he's just going there to meet them. And when he gets, he's got like, you know, a, a sport coat on and he's got like his little, he's very casual. And he doesn't realize until he gets there because he sees somebody else in the conference room making a pitch. And we all know venture capitalists are the people that write you, you know, the million dollar or the hundred million dollar check. So they're very much part of the system we're talking about here, right? Mm -hmm. So he gets there and he realizes this is not a get to know you conversation. They think he's coming to pitch his business. And his business is actually... he. His product is actually what we know as a, if you're old enough, a Palm Pilot. Oh my gosh, I had one of those. Yeah, it it was. And if you're of a certain age, you don't know what a Palm Pilot is, but it was a very early version of the iPhone. All right. But no one had ever seen an iPhone or a Palm Pilot or anything like an iPhone or a Palm Pilot. So he thinks he's there just to get to know them. He realizes they're expecting like a pitch for his business. He has no prototype. He has no business model. He's just got an idea in his head for this handheld computer that you could type on and make phone calls and send email. And email's new. People are just learning about email. All right. So he goes into this meeting and he he knows, I mean, this is a total scarcity thing, right? He, He knows he's screwed because... These are venture capitalists. And if he doesn't do a good job, he's, they're not going to write him a check for $100 million. And he needs $100 million or whatever the figure is to start his company. So here's the part that I think is relevant. He starts talking and for a minute or two, he kind of talks about a new type of computer that's handheld and can do these things. But it's all conceptual. No one's ever seen anything like this before. And then he has like, a portfolio, you know, like a thing that you put your legal pad in that you get at Staples for $19. Mm-hmm. Nothing fancy. He throws it in the middle of the table and he says, there it is. Introducing this new handheld computer. It's not a handheld computer. It's a $19 portfolio from, from Staples. Mm-hmm. He doesn't tell them that. He's just desperate. He thinks, oh, you know, a little theatrics in the absence of any real substance here. And the VCs sitting around the table, they are consumed by the portfolio. One reaches out and kind of touches it like he's a little afraid of it. And they start debating how cheaply you could make the thing he said was in the middle of the table. But it's not there at all. It's just a $19 portfolio. Mm. But I think in this conversation about MMT, if you want to to get people to imagine what it means for them, I think you, you 
the community of people who see MMT as the solution to those problems need to figure out how to throw the portfolio in the middle of the table Mm. and get everyone to hunger for what's in there. Because I want everyone to have enough food. I want everyone to have health care. I want everyone to have a job. I want everyone to have security and abundance and happiness. And I don't care what the economic system is. But when you start the conversation by talking about the economic system, first of all, it scares people and probably confuses people and completely clouds the issue, which is, how do we create a world that's better for everyone? Okay. That's a very interesting story. I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure. Well, I mean, it's an interesting story and it needs to be, you know, it's in a way, I think you have to hit it at both ends because immediately when you say, you know, like, you know, Bernie Sanders, Medicare for all or free college or whatever, you know, immediately it's pie in the sky, inflation, how you can pay for it. So, well, you know, I think people I, are I'm, I've been to, I'm going to re- Google this book and tell you that. Today, I introduce MMT to author, journalist, radio talker, podcaster, and friend, Greg Stebbin. Greg is co-author of the 1999 book, Everything You Need to Know About Economics, which is part of a four-book series called The Pocket Professor on the topics of economics, physics, philosophy, and religion. Among several other books, Greg also co-wrote the 2017 The Little Red Book of New York Wisdom with former Mayor Ed Koch. This two-part episode is an unscripted conversation, 
but our starting off point is a short introductory post I wrote for the purpose of this discussion. In part one, I give Greg a broad introduction to MMT, its basic policy implications, and some of the major myths it shatters. In part two, we branch out to a wide-ranging conversation about the state of the world and how MMT does and does not apply to it. This episode is also another step in my journey to creating a general introduction to MMT. It's actually my second recording with Greg. The first in May of last year was never released. I ran through my introduction presentation, which I had been working on for several months. Although I got a lot out of the experience, including some important analogies and insights, as a whole it just never came together. It was overwhelming. Even though only an hour, it probably contained somewhere between five hours and four years of information. After my experience with Greg, I abandoned the presentation entirely. This was most upsetting to me because of how so many gave their time and feedback to improve it. As Greg says, however, it was all a part of how I got to where I am today. The information is still there, just in a different form. Speaking of which, before listening to today's episode, you might want to consider reading my post. It's called A Political Introduction to Real World Economics. You can find a link to it in the show notes, and you can also go directly to it at activistmmt.org slash power hyphen intro. That's activistmmt.org slash power hyphen intro. If you like what you hear, then I hope you might consider becoming a monthly patron of Activist MMT. Patrons have exclusive access to several full-length episodes right now. Patrons also get the opportunity to ask my academic guests questions, such as my recent episode with Warren Mosler. They also support the development of my large and growing collection of Learn MMT resources. To become a patron, you can start by going to patreon.com slash activist MMT. Every little bit helps a little bit, and it all adds up to a lot. Thanks. And now, on to my conversation with Greg Steppen. Enjoy. Today, I introduce...